X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Monday, August 3rd. In case you weren't sure, today is one of the days that is a good day to rate and review the podcast, to share it with a friend. In case you didn't know, five stars is a very helpful thing to do. And telling a couple friends, posting it on social media to let people know that now Portland does have a daily local news podcast that you can listen to, and it's priceless. By priceless, I mean we don't charge anything. Today, back in the day, 1873, the Great Fire of 1873 actually started yesterday back in the day, a mere month after Henry Failing took office as Portland's mayor. The largest fire in the city's history engulfed 22 blocks on the Portland waterfront in the vicinity of Southwest Alder. Henry Failing was an early Portland mayor. He started with forecasting budget revenues, codifying city ordinances, financing gas street lamps, funding the removal of the snags from the Willamette River. When Failing ran for re-election in June of 1865, he didn't fail. He got 785 out of 790 votes cast. I know, it's not a lot of voters. But still, it made his election the nearest unanimous victory in Portland mayoral history. And of course, one of the primary reasons for the low vote count was the misogynist and racist voting rules back in the day. Failing resigned without recorded reason in November of 1866. He ended up starting the first National Bank of Portland, and then he ran again for mayor some years later in 1873 and won by only 40 votes. And then, just a month later, starting the morning of August 2nd, 1873 at 4.20 a.m., yeah, I know, a fire started on First Street near Taylor at the Hergert and Schindler Furniture Store. It was fueled by the oils and varnishes in the store. Volunteer fire departments came from Salem, Vancouver, and Oregon City, as well as Portland, to try to put out the fire. They were able to stop it to the north, but it kept burning to the south. It burned 22 square blocks. Among the losses were two engine houses, two sash factories, three foundries, four mills, five hotels, a partridge and a pear tree, 100 retail stores, 250 dwellings, 150 families were homeless and encamped on the city park. Later on, of course, the city funded fire departments that became critical to keeping cities from burning down. More recently, thanks to smoke detectors and flame retardants, house fires now comprise, interesting fact, just 3% of fire department calls. The vast bulk of fire department calls now are medical aid. Incidentally, the relief effort after the Great Fire was thwarted by the Panic of 1873. That started the very next month. It was a four-year depression that hit North America, France, Britain. This came pretty much right after the U.S. changed national silver policy. Silver prices went way down. We went to the gold standard. Of course, Henry Failing, who looked a little bit like a thicker version of Alec Baldwin in 30 Rock, plus with mutton chops, he's the inspiration of Failing Street. And Ned Failing, a young descendant, is now one of the organizers of Pickathon. Next up, we'll have your quick six news headlines, and then we're going to continue our focus on the special election for city council. Ballots due real soon. Today, you'll have both candidates, Loretta Smith and Dan Ryan, on key issues facing the city and outlining their respective approaches. Ballots are due August 11th, by the way. That's next Tuesday. X-Ray. Now up, it is the Quick 6 Local Rundown. The next special legislative session will be August 10th. Governor Brown will call the session to close the $1.2 billion budget gap. The next regular legislative session is scheduled for January 2021. Also on the agenda may include police reform bills, also legal protections for businesses open during the pandemic. In the coming days, we'll release some of the bills we know are up. One key thing we're watching is whether the bill on qualified immunity is going to make it on the list. Senate Republicans, meanwhile, are trying to keep issues beyond the budget from being on the agenda. Many Democrats, Democrats, of course, are in control of the legislature, are looking to introduce priorities like police reform, workers' compensation for workers with COVID. 
The last special session that took place in June saw the passing of several bills, including bills banning the use of police chokeholds, extending the state's eviction moratorium, and some covert relief and other police reform measures. Stay tuned to The Local, and we will be offering news about what bills end up making it on the list of consideration. Staff at the Multnomah County Detention Center are ignoring orders to wear masks. Portland Mercury reporting six weeks ago, Multnomah County made mask wearing mandatory for all jail workers. According to medical staff, public defenders and people in custody, corrections officers are still not practicing social distancing or wearing the masks. The MCDC, located inside the Justice Center downtown, processes most people arrested in the county. Corey Elia, a journalist for KBU, was arrested at a protest on June 30th. He was placed in an isolation cell when he asked officers why they weren't wearing masks. The ventilation system also allows tear gas thrown by officers at protest outside to enter the jail. And deputies reportedly turned off the emergency call button during the gassings so that incarcerated people could not call for help. Chris Lytle, an MCDC spokesperson, said that for officers in the jail, here's the quote, much like the public, we educate and encourage compliance. One difference, of course, is not every person in the state works for the governor. Every corrections officer does work for the corrections department. To be clear, though, only three mask-related complaints were filed between June 23rd and July 13th. An anonymous employee believes that more cases go unreported due to the fear of retaliation. Your daily dose of data, 285 new cases, one new death reported on Sunday. Total number of confirmed cases now at 19,097 and 326 recorded deaths. Meanwhile, rural Republicans are pushing against Governor Brown's school reopening plan. She's called for 10 or fewer cases per 100,000 in a county in order for a school to reopen. Rural schools may reopen with infection rates of 30 cases per 100,000. But Eastern Oregon Republicans say these metrics are too restrictive. They want the local leaders to be in charge. Governor Brown and other state officials are now working towards a compromise. Current state regulations mean that most school districts would require online learning. Representative Mark Owens of Crane, Oregon, said online classes are not feasible for most of the people they represent. And Representative Daniel Bonham of the Dalles said this, Everything has an element of risk to it, and we make calculated risks. We try to do the best for the majority of constituents we serve. By the way, Morrill County and Umatilla County, two counties in eastern Oregon, rank 70th and 75th per capita in new coronavirus infection rates among the more than 3,000 counties in the United States. Of course, as Representative Daniel Bonham had to say, everything has an element of risk to it. No comment was available from 326 Oregonians who have died from COVID-19. And the Multnomah County November ballot might include two different universal preschool measures. Over 32,000 residents signed petitions advocating for putting universal preschool on the November ballot. That was by Universal Preschool Now. That would provide free preschool for everyone and would guarantee providers wages above the minimum wage. Preschool for all is the effort done by the county. That would help parents just under a certain income level. Currently, the two efforts are negotiating a merging of the plans. Since Universal Preschool Now has already qualified to be on the ballot, the Board of Commissioners can either adopt it or put it on the ballot straight. If they adopt it at a hand, their other option would likely be discarded. And if they do put it to a vote, the two plans will be put in competition with each other on that November ballot. And a wildfire east of Hood River has grown beyond 100 acres. It was first reported late at night on Saturday, about 11 p.m. By 5 a.m. on Sunday, it had spread to over 100 acres. The Oregon Department of Forestry took the lead on containing the fire, but was unable to provide many details. We've talked before that this is fire season. The Department of Forestry tweeted on Saturday that fire danger is extreme in the central Oregon district, but that includes Hood River County. The cause is still being investigated, and as of Sunday, no homes or buildings were threatened. 
And in your sports, entertainment, and zoo news, Blazers won an overtime game against the Grizzlies, lost a close game to the Celtics. They're now two and a half games back out of the playoffs and just a game out of a play-in tournament. And the Oregon Zoo released 23 endangered turtles into the wild. The turtles have been living at the zoo since last October. Western pond turtles are considered endangered in Washington. They're sensitive in Oregon. I'm sensitive in Oregon all the time. The turtles were taken when they were itty-bitty from the wild by conservation scientists raised in a lab where they could be protected. In less than a year, the turtles grew to a size that would have taken them two to three years in the wild. Their top predator? Bullfrogs. They're a non-native species. Researchers have found that of the over 1,500 turtles released since 2000, 95% survive each year. The Oregon Zoo also works to save California condors, Oregon silver spot butterflies, and northern leopard frogs. Not to be confused with bullfrogs, which aren't native to these parts. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray. Next up is Emily Gilliland with our candidate interview mashup. Over the last week, we've offered a focus on City Council position two, the special election that will fill the seat of the late Nick Fish on Portland City Council. You've heard from Loretta Smith and Dan Ryan. As a reminder, the full interviews can be found on your favorite podcast platform under X-Ray's Vision 2020 Candidate Interview Series. Today, we offer both candidates on the issues and their approaches to the role. First up, what is the difference in policy approaches? Here is Loretta Smith. I think that my thought around housing and homelessness is different than than my opponent. Um, I think we need to be land banking so that we can level the playing field for um, for for our folks who are rent burdened. Um, I, I don't think we can build our way out of this um, you know out of this economic uh, doldrum because if you look at how long it takes to get pre uh, development um, permitting, design review, and actual building of a place, it takes anywhere between four to six years. So even if we had a billion dollars this year, we couldn't put a billion dollars worth of property, you know, affordable housing in the city of Portland. But what I would do is I take the multi-program, and it's a program that's um, jointly done between the city and the county to give property uh, tax abatement to uh, new projects. I would use those same property tax abatements for existing multiplexes so that we could buy those up, fix them up and and put affordable housing online within a year. So those are some differences in in our approach. And I would take that $60 million that Multnomah County and the city of Portland are splitting um, to pay for the joint office. I take that $60 million, those folks who are actually houseless and unsheltered on our city streets, downtown and out through our neighborhoods, I would house them first. And I would figure out how to get these schools open that have been sitting for years. We need to go into partnership with Portland Public Schools and these elementary schools and middle schools that are around our city that have been closed for years. Let's figure out how do we transform those in a way that makes sense for people who need affordable housing. And the third thing is my my, um, opponent is not talking about um, making sure that we build wealth within communities of color. I want to build programs, and you know the CDBG money is federal money that the city of Portland that we, um, act, well, it's Prosper Portland actually administers it. I want to use that, that CDBG money, the Community Development Block Grant ambush. Um, I want that money to be used to help people buy homes in a greater degree. 
And I think Senator Wyden and Senator Merkley can actually put additional dollars in the CDBG program so that we can have more money to do more for more families. And how will each candidate get things done? Here are Dan and Loretta with their experience moving from a problem to policy to action. Yeah, when you're experienced like me and you've actually have 35 years of building programs, building teams in the independent nonprofit community impact space, uh, and you, you, with a little bit of money, you get a lot of impact. It's the perfect type of skill set you need when we're in a time and a place of multiple crises. We have to think out of the box. I think I would be so hampered by being a part of the status quo in this uh, local electorate for the last 20 years who basically have just uh, watched transportation become, hasn't been moving, literally. Um, We have seen uh, the homeless and housing situation get much, much worse. Um, There just hasn't been a lot of results. So the reason I was recruited is because people know that I know how to focus on complex local problems and and then use complex local, and it takes complex local solutions as opposed to piffy little uh, sound bites and silver bullets that might be on the surface level, but never get us to real um, impact. And so I come from the real world where you have to get impact and you have to measure impact. And I'm looking forward to, um, it doesn't matter what the, what the sector is. To me, it's like what your results are as a leader. And I'm really proud of my record and I'm proud of my creative thinking. I'm proud of how I bring so many different sectors together. I'm not a divisive person. I mean, I think it's really good documentation. When you look back when I was on the school board, there were four, three votes for like four months and we were split pretty badly. I was voting with the two women of color to say, if it's good for North Portland, why not the whole district? And at the end of it, the consultant who wanted to meet with all of us, decided uh, after interviewing everybody, I was the one that everyone picked as the chair. And so I, I have an ability to bring people together and not take things too personally, because for me, it's always about what the residents need, what the students need, what the patients need. It's not about what Dan Ryan needs. If you were going to name the three things where you connected policy to problem to policy to resources, what are, and you know, don't, you don't have to name three, you can pick one or two, you go to four. I can, I can name five, but I'll name three just to be, just, just to give you an example. I did something that no one ever did before. I was able to put $2 million into a pot of permanent money for communities of color. I built a coalition called the Promise Coalition, and it was with Latino Network, Urco, NEA, SEI, and, and Head Start. And I put that group together because I wanted us to get prepared for the, to, to apply for the federal money. And in order to apply for a federal money, you had to put a, a, a coalition like that together that served all the different uh, demographics. I put that together and then doubled back and went to the feds my last year and got $30 million for this group. No one has ever put these kind of resources from the general fund. For, for organizations of color to help with wraparound supports. They said, our kids are not graduating from high school at the same rate as everyone else. We need some help. If we have more dollars, we can help more of our kids and they could graduate from high school. I saw that, I heard that. Mm-hmm. I answered that call of duty. And this is why I got pretty much beat up from the top of my head to the bottom of my feet. I was trying to get resources for people who had never had them before. Mm-hmm. Second. I saw, I had a town hall meeting, a black men's town hall meeting My in three months in. It was standing room only. It was almost close to 300 people from age 14 to 78. 
people there said, you know, back in the day, Commissioner, we used to have summer jobs for our kids. We don't have any. Out of that program, I started my summer jobs program with 25 kids, and I built that program over the years. Before I left, I put that program in permanent budget, and we were serving 650 kids that we were paying for. I even got invited to the White House when President Obama was there for the work that I had done around summer jobs. So I don't care about that kind of thing, but I do care about being able to speak truth to power. And I was happy that me and Andrew uh, McGough from uh, Work Systems were able to go to the White House to talk about what we did. You have to be very deliberate and intentional when you're doing this kind of work. If you don't call it out specifically what you want to do, you're not going to be able to make um, make policy from politics to protest work. And you and you and you have to not be afraid. See, I was not afraid to sit there and say no. We're going to sit here in the budget until you pay for. Uh, 50 kids until you pay for 100 kids. And then every year I upped the kids. I doubled it. No, this year we're going to do 200 kids. And, you know, yes, I did. I held up the, the budget process like everybody else did for their projects too. But I was clear because I was one of those kids. I was one of those CETA kids. They got the JTPA money, and which is now the WIA money, um, for underserved kids to get jobs. And so it worked for me and I wanted other kids to be able to have that opportunity. So that's why I run for office. That's why I lend my voice. And I think my voice today is probably going to be more appreciated than it was while I was at Multnomah County, but we were very effective and we got some stuff done. There is no way you can pass over a hundred resolutions. Um, I had to get two people over a hundred times and they weren't all the same two people. You know how it is, uh, Jefferson. So you may disagree with me, but you cannot disagree with good policy. One of the issues and opportunities facing the candidates is police reform. Here are the candidates on moving forward with an independent police review. Let's talk about independent police review. You mentioned it in this interview. You have called for it. It, it is, as we record this, up for a vote today in the city council. It has been described as Joanne Hardesty's plan. I think it is also fair to say it's something that you called for some time ago. Explain yeah, I, the, you go ahead. Yeah, I called for it on, um, it was around June 5th or June 8th when I dropped my plan. And um, I sent it to all the city commissioners and I called the mayor personally and, and went point by point of what my plan was. And I also called Daryl Turner. And I told him he probably is not gonna be happy with me um, and in fact, he said, I can, I can support three of these. He didn't support the, the, um, the qualified immunity, but um, he could work with, with the other three around the independent review, uh, reallocating the dollars and some of the things about the rubber bullets and, and the chokehold. I think it was the chokehold in there. He was like, we can work with some of these things. And so that was like, okay, cool. But we sent it to every commissioner, and I was talking about having an independent review back in June. Commissioner Hardesty, to her credit, she's pushing one of the one of the uh, points in my plan. And I don't care if she got it from me or she just thought of it magically. That's okay with me. I just want it to be done. But I see uh, in the paper that the uh, police uh, union they don't believe that that vote is possible or or legal at this point. So they were talking about it yesterday. And so 
talk about either why it's important or what are some of the most important elements of it? Because there's some degree of civilian oversight now. The criticism, it's not sufficiently independent and it doesn't have enough teeth. How do you make sure it's truly independent and how do you make sure it actually is? You have to codify it. You have to codify it with with the teeth, because depending on which administration is in will depend on how strong it is or how weak it is. But if you put the teeth in the actual um, uh, charter, you will, you will keep it and it will be the same uh, until you change it again. So I think that um, this is the right move. Uh, the lawyers will have to figure out if it's legal or not, but I think it's important to have. And you're talking about previously sort of a community review, independent review with teeth and with accountability. You're on the record supporting that. Uh, how, how hard is that going to be to pass? You think there are the votes on the council and you think there's going to be the campaign apparatus to pass it in what, a time frame of two and a half months? I think that it will uh, do really well um, with the voters. And I think that it's important to make sure that we have the critical mass. We have attitudes and beliefs and values that have been shifted like never before. It's always exciting, as you know, Jefferson, when you can witness the population shifting on an issue, you know, as a, as a gay man, as somebody that never thought the marriage would be legal, um, just to see that swiftly like change. That seemed to happen fast, didn't it? It's yeah. within, within a handful of years. Well, it took this uh, uprising, you know, this uprising is a beautiful thing when it comes to your average, let's just say your average white person now has uh, shifted their opinions on the fact that police um, treat people of color uh, much differently than they treat white people. A lot of us have known this for years, but many people haven't been active about it. So the fact that we have a mass population in the city of Portland, understanding that is a beautiful thing. So we got to take that momentum and, and pass some policy that will allow our practice to change. And I use the word practice for a reason, because practice eats policy for lunch. How many times down in Salem did you feel good about a policy you passed? And then if you would have looked into into it four years later, you would discover that it never landed on the ground. How many times did that happen? So I, I don't know if I'd say never landed on the ground, but how many times would I be disappointed with how how vision translated action? I probably every time. Exactly. And and some of that is because as leaders, elected leaders, we don't do a good enough job monitoring our progress with transparency. I think it's difficult in the two-year to four-year election cycles where we're trying to get 50.1 to actually do the hard work because we just need to come with a piffy little comments to win the race. And so what, what elected officials are being called to do on this one now more than ever is, is really bringing in the community and making sure this is a ground-up movement. And so it's going to make us behave differently. It means we're going to have to hold more messiness, if you will, and more tension. And it's not going to be fixed overnight but it's going to be a long haul. And that's one reason I come from the independent community sector. I'm not from the political sector. I'm okay if uh, how many terms I run. It's about doing your job well. And this is going to be one where you're going to have to take some courageous risk um, to make sure that we keep moving forward. And my philosophy is always measure what you want, measure what success looks like, be transparent about it with the public, have a dashboard, publicize that, let everyone know how it's going. And guess what? Admit when it's not moving very well. And then, and just say that because it happens all the time. But instead what we do in Portland many times is we blow that up and we come up with another cute name and another proclamation. And then two to three years, once again, nothing really happened. And then we act like that never occurred. That's BS. I mean, it's like, we got to really take this one seriously and it's for the long term. 
and their thoughts on how the mayor is doing with the Black Lives Matter movement and how they would support if they were in office. I think his response in the past week was different than earlier. Um, and I think he's been very, well, one, he went down there and he, uh, you know, showed some great uh, leadership and humility just by facing the protesters and, and having a conversation. He also has been very strong and on message about how unhelpful it is to have um, the current president's re-election campaign use us as a stage and a prop. Um, and I appreciate that. So that, that I'll give him kudos on that. And uh, yeah, that's been his number one strength of late. What's he done wrong? Impl- implied in there is maybe he should have gone down earlier, but beyond that, perhaps, what are the most important things he's done wrong or failed to do? You know, I, I really am careful to um, criticize what I don't know. <laughs> and I'm going to be working with the mayor, um, you know, right after August 11th. That's fair. Let me re- rephrase the question. If you were advising the mayor, yeah. what would you have advised him to do early on when we were facing and, and I think he got high marks uh, by lots of people for his early response to the coronavirus, right? And that now seems like so long ago, but it was only, you know, five months ago. And and not as high marks, I think, if you just sort of listen to social media chatter over the last five weeks. If you were advising him five weeks ago or advising him today, what would you be suggesting? Yeah, I think he uh, was slow on really going hard on the police in terms of their militant use of um you know, tear gas, we, we, it's like you pass legislation, but it's about the implementation. And it, it allowed the police to make calls on what they determined was a riot. I think there should have been, um, if I was the mayor, I probably would have been down there monitoring when they were making that call. And as a commissioner, I would have been working with the police chief to push back if I thought if I thought that there's no way this is a riot. In fact, you guys just instigated a riot by your reaction. As somebody that's been, you know, involved in protesting much of my uh, life off and on, I'm, I'm well aware of how escalated it is once the armor shows up. I'm, a, I'm definitely a lover, not a fighter and a peace guy. And I know that every time I've been in a protest where the armor comes out, it just gets my heart going and I get like aggressive on some level I can't even explain. And so I think that, that, that was where he was slow. I also think that as a mayor and as a leader, we have to take the risk. I, you know, I, I was a Jimmy Carter fan, much of my um, uh, teen and 20, in my 20s, because I liked how he leaned into the Middle East. In spite of everyone saying it was impossible, he would bring these people to the table that no one thought would ever listen to one another. Now, clearly doing conflict negotiation work is very methodical and it takes a while, but why can't we dream? Why can't we imagine what it would be like if we had some epic like peace summits right now that were, that were out of the city hall, somewhere out in the community, and that we had different fractions of the protesters, we have police, we have business owners, and small business owners especially, that are, that are definitely affected by this, and my friends who live downtown, and quite frankly, my friends who live on MLK and Killingsworth that for a while were up late every night um, and having tear gas come into their homes, and same with my neighborhood out here in North Portland where the police union headquarters are, a lot of people are now affected by, I would say, the trauma after a certain hour. And Jefferson, we got to come together. This is really devastating what's happening with uh, coronavirus meets our economic devastation. And we as a city have to have some peaceful communication. 
And I'm not saying those meetings are going to be chill. I'm not saying that there won't be tons of tension. And I am actually comfortable with that. What I'm not comfortable with is no one's listening to each other, it appears. And that's troublesome. So what's the move to get that listening? If listening is the thing, what's the first, second, third move? How do you begin that sort of thing without just seeming like a sellout, without sort of seeming like, hey, protesters, calm down, and sounding like you're just on the side of somebody who's complaining about some spray paint? That's a great, that's a fair question. I think that uh, the truth is it's a courageous act to begin that type of dialogue. It's a courageous act to bring people to the same table that seemingly have no interest in agreeing with each other. But what I found in my experience when I've done that in other situations where there was a lot of conflict, I was the uh, facilitator of these discussions back in the AIDS pandemic in Seattle in 1990. And you had um, the activists from ACT UP and then you had the people from the health department and man, there was a lot of friction then. There was some major protesting and I had to bring them to the same room and, and just really have like some rules on how we would engage. And I got to tell you, after three meetings, it was a different scenario. And we started to figure out that we had some of the same goals in mind. Yeah, we had different ways of getting there. But I have found, call me an idealist, that you can do this if it's if well-prepared, it's methodical, and you're very humble about what you're going to receive. You don't come in with a baked notion. You don't come in with a top-down drive. You come in with a willingness to do the dialogue and then find out what the common goals are. With regards to Black Lives Matter, uh, what has the mayor done right or wrong? Uh, how would you advise him? Well, I have advised him along the way. I've sent him many letters on what he should be doing. Okay. And But what I think the mayor is, he's attempting to do, he's... Um, He's trying to balance between um, what's right and what's just and what perception is and what reality is on the streets. And he's caught in the middle because when he goes left, then one of his city council people, they pull him back another way. Um, he doesn't have a unified voice on how to go forward with this. And that is so important because they're, they're flip-flopping things that are going on on that city council. And it would be great to have him be a voice that is a voice of the commission. Not that we're, we're all, you know, in, in one lockstep, but it would be nice to say, Portland City Council believes this, and this is how we're going to go forward. But at any given time, <laughs> he's going he's, he's gonna to contrast with Commissioner Hardesty or Udaley or even Commissioner Fritz. But it, it looks like it's all over the place. And so then it looks like he's not really strong. Um, I, I just think that um, help is on the way. And um, he just needs some more help on that city council. For any candidate, there is vision for the community and priorities of work to be done. There is also their personal motivation for running for office. Here is what Loretta and Dan had to say about what they are excited about in their service to Portland. I'm, I'm most excited about being a, um, being a role model for young women and it doesn't matter what color you are. And I want little girls like my grandkids and my little cousins to say, I can do that too. I can make a difference too. And I want to be able to carry myself in a way that is honorable and a way that 
people will want to do the same thing that I'm doing as a public servant. And so that's, you know, that is so important to me because we have to leave a legacy. We have to set a blueprint. I mean, we're in 2020. It wasn't until 2018 that we had our first black woman on the board. And 2020 gave us our first Latina woman. And 2020 is going to give us our first black mother. So <laughs> we, we, we have a lot of catching up to do. And I think we got the, a good mix of people with, with backgrounds and skill sets that will, that will serve us all. In, in a way that we can be a whole lot better than where we were, not just going back to normal, but being better. Well, for, I just love learning, first of all. So I just can't wait to uh, be a sponge with um, the people I'm gonna work with. And especially, um, you know, with, a, with Commissioner Fritz leaving, I think it'll be a great opportunity to, I find when people are leaving, they're even more open to sharing their knowledge. So I wanna really dive in to what she experienced. And uh, really just figuring out, um, I'm a team player, and so I like to figure out what, what gap that I can fill in. And um, I think that's really important. We have to spread the field. All right, I'm a, I'm a total sports person. So it's like, how do you spread the field? You know, the lanes of basketball. And you see it with soccer, right? Where all the little kids, when they first start playing soccer, they're all around the They'll bunch up around the ball. You got to spread the court. You got to figure out how to spread it and get things done. Um, and I just love developing new relationships um, because relationships move at the speed of trust. And the reason I, I'm in this thing is because over the years, in spite of being an outsider and not being a political insider, and therefore a lot of people not giving me a shot, I built so many relationships in the city and I'm excited to bring those relationships to City Hall. Because I know a lot of people that get you know what done in this town that have felt completely excluded from City Hall for a while. And so stop the smugness, Portland. We don't know everything, like get over it. And let's like figure out how to be humble and come together and, and build forward. Thank you to Loretta Smith and Dan Ryan for spending time with Jefferson, DJ Ambush, and myself, Emily Gilliland, over the last several months. Our recent interviews are the third round of interviews with the candidates. You can find all of the interviews with Dan Ryan and Loretta Smith on xraypod.com and podcast platforms under X-Ray's Vision 2020 Candidate Interview Series. Thank you to Dan and Loretta for joining The Local, and thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. Thanks for subscribing, giving a five-star review, tweeting, telling friends, and thank you, democracy. Talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.